You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. So just to recap, we've been going through the book of James. Um, and I don't know if you guys are excited or sad about this, but we're reaching the final part, right? These are the last few verses. So just a recap of what we've read in chapter one, we talked about how as believers, we will be tested, right? We will face trials. We will go through difficult times. And that's just the truth of life, right? Regardless if we believe in Jesus or not, we're going to face problems. But the thing is, if we do have Jesus, James here says to endure, right? But not only to endure, he says, when you face trials, to take joy, Um, And knowing that this is strengthening our faith, we find our purpose in our trials. We also spoke on how it isn't God who is tempting us, but our own desires, right, of our heart that lead us astray. We saw that if we endure, if we persevere, if we keep moving forward, that we will receive the crown of life. We talked about not only being hearers of the word, right, just consuming the word or reading the word, but being doers, taking action, and then it says, for everyone, if anyone is a hero, not a doer, he is a man that looks at his natural face in the mirror, and then he walks away, and he forgets, right? So we read the word, and we don't really pay attention. It doesn't really have an impact on our actions in our lives. In chapter 2, we talked about the sin of partiality. For the, the people in the church were preferring, preferring the rich over the poor. And we talked about we're not supposed to have favoritism based on someone's outward appearance. James referred to loving our neighbors, right, as ourselves, and how... We are to show mercy instead of judgment, how mercy always triumphs over judgment. We spoke on how faith without any action, without any works, is dead. We are presented with the question, do we have a saving faith? James says that if we have faith without works, that it's dead. There's a call to action there. In chapter 3, we talked about taming our tongue. James says, does a spring pour forth Fresh water and salt water, it can't do both, right? We talked about how we are supposed to seek wisdom from God, wisdom from above, because earthly wisdom is different than heavenly, than heavenly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is jealous and self-ambitious. Heavenly wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. There's that word again. With good fruit, impartial, sincere. We saw how there's a connection with wisdom and being meek, right? A connection between wisdom and submitting to God. In chapter 4, we saw that James encourages us to draw near to God and away from the world, to humble ourselves before the Lord, to submit our lives before the Lord. You know, James tells us that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We may make plans, but he says that our life is like a morning mist here one second, gone the next. So he makes us question, are my intentions, is my focus on things that are temporary of this world or on the godly things that last forever, that are eternal? In chapter 5, James talks about earthly riches, right, corroding, wasting away. And then we wrestled with the question, is my hope, is my faith in materialistic things of this world, things that we can acquire, or is my faith, is my hope in Jesus Christ? And then we talked about being patient with our faith. When we suffer, we are to remain steadfast. We are to remain clinging on to God, clinging on to the word. And today, we're talking about the importance of prayer, the importance of fellowship, and the importance of helping sinners that have turned away from God and helping them bring them, or helping bring them back. Um, So we're going to read through uh, most of this. Um, 
and then I'm going to head back, and we'll, we'll break it down bit by bit. But uh, we're going to be in James chapter 5, and then it's going to be verses 13 uh, through 20. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you. It'll also be up behind me. Um, but yeah, if you can just follow along, we're going to read this together. Um, and then, like I said, we will, uh, we'll go back and break it down just a little bit, mostly because that's how my brain works. If I like read everything at once, I'll just go off on different tangents. But if I like break it down in my mind, it makes more sense. So just so I don't take too long as well. But, uh, it, it's titled the prayer of faith. So James chapter five, verse 13, verses 13 through 20 says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and, we will, and it will cover a multitude of sins." Verse 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray, right? Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders. So there's a pattern here in everything that we read. It's talking about prayer, right? We see the importance of prayer. We see the importance of prayer in our lives. So James leaves instructions to do for when we are suffering, right? Pray. For when we are cheerful, it's saying praise be, be thankful to God. Uh, when we're sick, it's saying, call the elders of the church. So it's interesting that the answer to both when you're suffering and when you're cheerful is both, right? Come to God. It, and <clears throat> I know that this is probably nobody else, just me today, but man, the times when my faith has been put to the test, I have failed some of those times the most difficult times in my life where I was suffering, my first reaction was not to pray, right? My first reaction was like, well, how can I fix this? How can I handle this situation? You know, because up to that point in my life, I'd been able to take care of certain things. I'd been able to handle stuff, but they, there came a point when things in my life were too big, the weight was too heavy, and I couldn't carry on. And then I remember even thinking like, God, where are you? Where are you in the middle of this situation? Like, I always heard that you wouldn't give me more than I could handle, but I can't handle this. But it was in those moments that God was bringing the truth of what was in my heart, right? I was prideful. I was saying, I've got this. I can handle this, God. And I wasn't praying. I felt desperate because it felt like God wasn't responding in the way that I wanted him to sometimes. Sometimes... Uh, looking back, like I said, it was just God bringing to light the things that were wrong in my heart. Taking joy when we are suffering, taking joy when we face trials isn't really our first reaction, but we have to be reminded of this. 
We have to be reminded to take joy. We have to be reminded to pray. James is inviting us in our moment of suffering that we are to seek God. Because when we pray, is us saying, God, I know that you're in control. When we pray, we're recognizing his presence. We're recognizing his power. We're recognizing his mercy and grace. We are saying that we trust that God truly is who he says he is when we pray, right? We're saying, God, I'm not in control. I can't handle the situation, but I trust that you are. I trust that you're there. We're not praying just to pray. We're praying expecting God to do something in our lives. We're praying expecting for God to respond in our suffering, in our trials. When we're in the middle of suffering, when we're in the middle of a trial, when we're facing things that we never thought we would face, what do we do? Where do we run? Again, on the opposite side of that same coin, when we're doing great, when everything's going well, when we're happy, our family's all healthy, our job is great, maybe we get a raise, we get a promotion, and everything is going great. What do we do? Where do we run? Who do we turn to? In verse 15, it says this, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the, heavenly, or, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Like I said, we see a theme, right, throughout all these verses about the importance of prayer. First, James calls uh, us as believers to embrace a life of prayer as a person, right? It says, oh, if you are suffering, pray, right, as an individual. Oh, God has been good to you? Pray. Give him thanks. Praise him. But then he goes on, and then in verse, uh, verses 14 through 15 says, hey, like, are you sick? Ask the congregation, ask the elders to pray for you. And then in verse 16, again, the congregation, right, they speak uh, to each other. They talk about their sins. They confess their sins to one another and pray for each other. Prayer is essential in our lives as believers. It is essential in making it through those difficult times. James is showing compassion to those who are suffering, right? His main focus was those that were being persecuted, those whose faith had been weakened, those who felt like they couldn't go on. I love this so much because James talks about the importance of prayer, which we all know, but he also talks about the importance of community, the importance of praying for one another, being there for one another, knowing that we are not alone. Which is why I think in earlier chapters, James is calling out the things that divided the church, right? He was calling out pride. He was calling out hypocrisy. He was calling out favoritism and slander, right? He, he was saying, hey, watch what you say about your brother. Bridle your tongue. Watch what you teach. Watch your desires and your passions that cause quarrel, that cause fights. All of these things were causing disunity in the body of Christ. And then James knew that it was important because of how much we need each other. 
That community, that, that unity is something that we see throughout Scripture. In Galatians, Paul says, uh, uh, talks about carrying each other's burdens. In Proverbs, it talks about how iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. We say this all the time, but it's true. We do not have to do this alone. We do not have to live the Christian life. We do not have to follow Jesus alone. We do not have to go through trials alone. We do not have to go through suffering alone. And it says it clearly here in Scripture, right? We do not have to wrestle with temptation alone. Yes, we can pray. We ask God for help, but we also have each other. Verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Listen, this isn't like a promo or a commercial for House Church, but I love House Church. Like, it's so good. Like, again, at the beginning, we say this every week, like, oh, it's a place where uh, it's a little bit more uh, intimate, where someone can get to you know your name, but that's the truth, right? Like, that's the truth. I, I can't really get to know you if I'm up here and I'm speaking to you. Yes, I'm speaking the word of God, but I don't know your specific problem. I don't know your specific need. I can pray for you in general, but like, man, knowing what you're going through, Knowing what trials you're facing and me being a part of that or someone else, your brother, your sister in Christ being a part of that helps out so much. But that's why I love House Church. You know, we're able to create this atmosphere, this culture where we can just be open, where we can be vulnerable and know that the people in that room aren't going to judge us but love us, that they're there for you, that like uh, James says in earlier chapters, that they are quick to, to listen and slow to speak that they show mercy before judgment. Again, this is why James was so adamant about all of these things, right, about unity in the church, because he realized, hey, we need each other. With youth, my favorite part of youth service isn't like me being up there and speaking or teaching or whatever. My favorite part is when it's all over and we're just eating pizza or cookies or like whatever junk food we have that week and then just talking to them. That's it, that relationship. That's my absolute favorite part, more than speaking. Speak, I mean, I, I don't know if I seem nervous, but speaking makes me nervous. <laughs> so like during youth service, I'm like, man, uh-oh, I got to wrap this up, right? But like that part at the end where I can really get to know someone, where I can get to talk to them, if we're being honest, they probably won't remember every lesson or every sermon they probably won't remember every Bible passage that I read. Ideally, I would love that, right? That would be the greatest if they remembered every single little thing. But realistically, that's not what's going on. But what, well, the, what they will remember is that we love them, that we poured into them, that we cared about what they had to say, that we cared about their problems, that we showed them that they weren't alone, that they didn't have to live life alone, that they could count on someone that no matter how badly they mess up and wander away from God, that there was a place where they still belong, a place or a person that is praying for them. You know, that is what I believe makes a bigger impact than me just showing them so much scripture and all of these passages. There's this book that I've been reading for a few months, um, and not because it's long, it's just I'm very distracted like, I could probably finish it in a couple of days if I really wanted to. But there's this book by uh, this guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's called Life Together. Um, and it's really good. I really recommend it. And, I mean, that's if you want to take a recommendation from a guy that hasn't finished the book. But so far, it's really good. Um, but he has this quote um, that I think is very important about community. It says this, We must be, a, we must be ready 
to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will constantly be crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. Community causes us to no longer live by my wants, my emotions, my needs. It causes us to be selfless, to be loving, to be understanding. And I think sometimes that can almost be scary, right? Because it's like, how can I help someone else if I'm barely making it by myself? Sometimes we can feel like, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? And the fact is, we don't always have to say the perfect thing, the perfect words. We don't have to say the right sequence of words. And, oh, I gave this great advice, and now this person isn't suffering anymore. This person isn't sad anymore. That's not really how it works, right? We don't have to really recall the whole Bible and give them the perfect passages like, that have to deal with their exact situations. Sometimes people just need us to be there for them to physically be there for them, to sit with them, to listen to them, to love them, to show them that they're not alone, to share what God has done in our lives, and like James instructs in his epistle, to pray. And it can be the simplest prayer, but knowing that someone loves you, cares about you, cares enough about your situation to even take the time to pray goes a long way. I also encourage you to, if you say that we're, or if we say that we're going to pray, to really pray. I feel like lately it's become almost like a saying at this point, right? Like, oh, sending thoughts and prayers, or I'll be praying for you. When in reality, it's more of like, oh, man, I'm sorry you're going through this. I'll be praying for you. And it's just, we leave it at that. I know that I've been guilty of that. Uh, mostly, I'll just forget. I used to make notes on my phone, but then I just wouldn't look at the notes. So I've learned to just pray on the spot, right? If I get a text and I'm driving and they're like, hey, can you pray for me? This is my situation. I will pray on the spot. I have to remember not to close my eyes while I'm driving, but I will pray on the spot, right? So I don't forget. And I think the more that I pray for someone, the more it reminds me to keep praying for them later on. But it's just getting that initial prayer out. Right? So we are to pray for each other. James instructs believers to pray for one another. I feel like we can do that. That's not that difficult. That's not something that is impossible for us, right? That's simple. We can pray for one another. Let's be that person that isn't afraid to ask for prayer. Sometimes, and I, this is what I struggle with. Like, while I was preparing for this, this is where God was like, hey, this is you. This is for you specifically. But something that I struggle with is asking for help, right? I don't mind praying for someone. I don't mind listening to someone. I don't mind being there for someone. You know, but I, it's hard to shake that mentality of like, oh, I'll handle this myself. Or I've got it. You know, Lord, I'll pray and I'll ask you for help. But it's just us two. We've got this. You know, for the sake of people around me, I'll listen to them. I'll pray for them. You know, interrupt my plans, God, with people that need prayer. I'll be there for them. But then at the same time, I wasn't allowing people to pray for me. I wasn't opening up. I wasn't talking to people. And like I said earlier, like God shows us what's really in our hearts. And I realized that's pride. I have that issue where it's like, oh, everyone else like can be... or. I can carry this burden, but like, do, why not expect my brother, my sister in Christ to be able to help me with the same thing? But that's just something that the Lord really put on my heart for me to work on, is to be able to open up to those around me. And it's easy to pray for someone that we like, but what about when it's someone that we're not too fond of? 
Another quote from the same book, Life Together, by Bonhoeffer, says this, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. So raise your hand if you think I'm annoying. No, don't do that, please. <laughs> but if you do, you have to pray for me, right? The person in your life that is causing you trouble, it says pray for them. The person in your life that is difficult to love, pray for them. You know, James was talking about how in the church they were slandering each other. But right here he's saying pray for them. Have you ever prayed for someone to change and then instead of God changing them or changing their situation, he just changes the way you view them, right? It's no longer this annoying person. It's no longer this person that is being stubborn and that is walking away from Jesus and that is lost and we're frustrated with them, but we see them not through our eyes, but through how Jesus sees them, through Jesus' eyes, right? The more we pray for them, it's like, Lord, they're lost just the way that I was lost. Lord, they need you as much as I need you. So when we pray for them, it changes the way that we view them. Again, verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power and is working. So a commentary that I was reading while working on this uh, better explains this than I ever could, but it says this. It says, As the context and the content of this section make clear, the subject is not physical illness or healing. Instead, it is the concern with the healing, with healing spiritual weakness spiritual exhaustion, and spiritual depression through prayer, as well as dealing with the suffering and sin that accompanies it. Specifically, James discusses the relationship of prayer to comfort, restoration, fellowship, and power. So not exactly those that were going through physical sickness, but through spiritual weakness, right? And then it says the antidote to your suffering, James says, is to pray. Those people that are suffering need our help. That help, what James is saying, is found in the elders of the church, those who have perhaps faced suffering, those who have made it through by the grace of God, those that are spiritually strong, that are spiritually mature, that are spiritually victorious, are to help those that are going through it, that are suffering, that are going through trials. We need each other, right? That's what James is saying. One moment I may be in a really good place, right? I may be encouraging you. I may be praying for you. But who knows, a week from now, a month from now, a year, 10 years, I may face the biggest trial that I've ever faced and my faith may be shaken. And I may need your prayers. I may need your words. I may need that love of Christ. So... Here, James encourages us to pray for those that are weak. He reminds us that the prayer of those that are spiritually strong is effective. The prayer of the righteous man, right? He notes that it can do great things in restoring those that are weak. He tells believers to confess their sins, right, to one another. And, and not wait until those sins drag us into the depth of spiritual defeat. Sin seeks to remain private. Sin wants to remain a secret, but God wants it exposed, right? God wants the bad things, the sin in our hearts to be exposed so we can work on it. That's why James calls for honesty, for confession, and for prayer. There's this quote 
that says, I couldn't remember where this was from. I just knew that I had heard it. But it says this. It says, anything that is human is mentionable. And anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we can talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting. The people that we trust with that important talk can help us know that we are not alone. Do you know who said that? It's not a theologian. It was Mr. Rogers. I don't, uh, you're too young, or I'm too young. I don't know. But it was Mr. Rogers that says that, right? But it's true. When we talk about our suffering, when we talk about our sin, our trials, our temptations, in some ways we take away the control that it has over our lives. It takes the weight off of us. That's why we carry each other's burdens. It literally feels like taking a weight off of our shoulders. When we talk about our sin, we shed the shame and the guilt that comes with it. The same shame and guilt that causes us to keep it a secret in the first place. Sin wants us to feel like we're alone, like we're the only ones that are messing up, like we're the only ones that like, are going through these difficult times. Man, whenever we're going through it, we feel like the worst of the worst. But when someone listens and encourages you, maybe sometimes even says, hey, I was in the same place you were, but look where I am now thanks to God. Right? That encourages us and motivates us to persevere and push through knowing that God will do the same for us. In James chapter 1, it talks about how it isn't God that tempts us, but that sin comes from our own desires then the desire gives birth to sin, right? And then when sin is fully grown, it leads to death, right? There's a chain of events. It's not just like, oh, I messed up and I accidentally sinned, but it's a slope. There's things that happened before. That's why James is saying, hey, talk to one, to one another. Confess your sins to one another before it becomes something that is out of control, right? It's easier to put out a small flame than it is a forest fire. He's saying, hey, Talk to someone, have someone that can keep you accountable, someone that loves you, that can pour into you. It's important to talk about something before it becomes something that you can't tame, before it's something that's harder to fix. Take care of that desire before it turns into sin. Take care of that sin before it leads to spiritual death. Community is not just for the sake of hanging out or having a good time or being like, oh, this person's cool, this person's all right, whatever, right? It's not for the sake of that. It's a matter of life and death. And we see that in the last two verses. James concludes with these two verses, he, verses 19 and 20. He says this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Man, what a way to end this whole book, right? And I was talking to Pastor Kai about this uh, while I was reading. And I was like, do you think James had ADHD? Because his brain works the way mine does. Like whenever I'm telling a story, or when most people tell a story, it's like beginning, middle, end, right? Just this linear story, very easy. But the way my brain works is I tell you the beginning, and then I'm like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Before I tell you the very beginning, let me go back to the very, very beginning. And like, let me tell you a side story that has to do with the middle part. And my stories all are, are all over the place 
place. And then at first glance, to me, it seemed like, is this what James is doing? Because it feels like he wrote something out that flowed. And then these last two verses just kind of like out of nowhere. To me, at first glance or on the surface, it felt like it was like, oh, yeah, I almost forgot these last two things. Right? And that's how I felt at first. I was like, did it just come out of nowhere? But then if we look at it, this is what James has been talking about the whole time. This is the coolest thing to me, how scripture is all tied together. It all makes sense. Like you take one thing, one theme, one word, whatever it may be, one thought, and you follow that string and it leads to something else. And then you follow that and it leads to something else. And like the more you dive into it, the more you realize it's all connected. And then you think about the fact that, hey, this is over like the New Testament or the Old Testament to the New Testament. Hundreds of years have gone by, uh, different authors, all these different things, but the Bible's still building on itself. It's interpreting itself and it all flows. Like I said, through hundreds of years, through multiple authors, and it all makes sense and it's all congruent. Sorry, I just nerd out on that stuff. It's really cool to me. But yeah, it's, this is all connected. This is what James has been talking about from chapter one to this point. Because that he's talking to believers, right? He's talking to the people in the church. And this is for us. It shows us the scary potential that we have to wander from the truth. Whenever we face trials and our faith is shaken, we have the potential to wander away from the truth. We wander into, into doubt and moments of trial. Because of the desires of our own heart, we wander into temptation. We wander away from grace and mercy to showing anger. We wander away from being humble and having a teachable, teachable spirit to being prejudiced and showing favoritism. We wander from a, a, a separation of how we speak and we say we should live and how we actually live. We wander from unity to conflict. We wander to speaking poorly of each other, of our brothers and sisters. We wander from being thankful to grumbling. We wander into a desperate way of living. And that's what James has been talking about all along, right? That's, that's why I did the recap at first, right? It wasn't just to take up time. If anything, I've taken up too much time. But it's like it all has to do with us and our potential to wander away from God. It's saying, hey, if we do all of these things, there's no unity. If we do all of these things, do we really have a saving faith? Do we have a faith that can take us to eternal life? At every point, James shows us the potential that us as believers have to wander away from the truth. And the reoccurring question throughout everything has been, do we have a saving faith? Do we have a living faith or is our faith dead? Right, and the, these last two verses, James asks us to confront those possibilities, right? To believers who say that they have faith, but there's no action. They say they have faith, but there's no changed lives, right? And this is, yeah, it's an evangelistic emphasis, right, on what he's saying. Like, those that have wandered away, we're to reach them, but it's specifically to those that once knew the truth, right? You can't wander away if you've never been there in the first place. It's saying those who have wandered away. So this is for those who identify with the church but have dead, non-saving faith. Here the writer calls on those that have the true saving faith to pursue such people. 
again, this is where the Lord has been dealing with me because especially in the past couple of years, like in the back of my mind, it's like they should know better, right? They've grown up in church. They know the truth. They know the word of God. Like, let them go then, right? That, not anymore. That's not my attitude anymore. But that was my attitude for the longest time is they should know better. They know the truth. But here James is pleading, right? It feels like he was really, like, going after them, really just laying the hammer, really laying into them, saying, hey, you're doing this wrong. But it wasn't just to be rude or be mean. It was like, out of desperation saying like, there are people that are being lost because of the way that we speak, because of the way that we act around them, because we do not have that faith and there's people that are walking away and we need to bring them back. And he's giving us all these different things that we should and shouldn't do. Ways to test if our faith is a saving faith. The thing is that we hardly ever wander away in one big moment, right? I know that there's people that maybe have said like, oh, okay, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't want anything to do with God. But for the most part, it's gradual, right? It's bit by bit. We stop seeking God's wisdom, right? We start talking poorly of other people. We start focusing on things of this earth. We stop surrendering all our lives to Christ, but that happens slowly. And it grows and it grows and it grows until a person turns their back on Jesus. And like I said, it really seems like James is just like letting these believers have it. But it's because he wanted them to check our hearts because we need to check our hearts. Man, it's a scary thing to think that you're following Jesus and that you have this living faith, right? But there's a few ways that James asked the church to test this, right? Are we showing favoritism? Are we taking action or is our faith dead? Do we have proper speech, wisdom? Are we being humble? Are we submitting our lives to Christ? Do we have that saving faith? Because Jesus in Matthew 7 says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will, and that's the important part, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? And in your name, we performed many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart, you who practice lawlessness. A saving faith isn't just knowing that Jesus is real or that Jesus exists. It's not just believing that, but it's submitting our lives to Christ. It's following his will for our lives. If we do have a saving faith, then these two last two verses are a call to action a call to loving and restoring relationships with one another, right? It wasn't just the pastors, the elders, when it said this, it was talking about the whole congregation, the whole church, right? When we have that saving faith, it's no longer just like my spiritual well-being, me making sure that I'm good, but making sure that those around me are good, allowing God to interrupt our lives with people that come across that are a mess, that need prayer, that need love, that need someone to just be there with them, to listen to them. The trials that we are facing now, God can use in the future to let people know that they're not alone. One last quote from the book that I still haven't finished reading. <laughs> it says this, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand 
which cause one Christian and one's community back from the path of sin. That's one of the greatest things that we can do for our brothers and our sisters in Christ is out of love, right? Out of love, reprimand them, talk to them, right? And that comes from being open. I'm gonna end with this. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you, che- are you cheerful? Are things going great in your life? Pray, praise God. Are you feeling spiritually weak? Ask those around you to pray for you. Talk to someone that you trust about the things that you're going through and let them pray for you. That is why we take joy in our trials, even though it doesn't make sense because we know that our faith is being tested. It's not God saying, hey, look, this is what's wrong in your heart. Look at how bad you're messing up. But it's out of love, right? He's, he's pleading with us. He's telling us, hey, this is what is in your heart that needs to change for you to be, become closer to me, for you to have that saving faith. These are the things in your heart that need to change. It's bringing him the things that are in our heart, right? Our desires. We take joy because he lets us see in the middle of those trials who are relying on. And when we check our hearts to see who we truly are relying on, if it's him, that keeps us from wandering. So if we feel like we're weak, like we're wandering from the truth, know that it's not too late. We aren't too far gone to be restored. If we see someone wandering away from the truth, pray. Reach out, talk to them, love them, show them mercy, right? Before judgment, like James was saying earlier, walk them back to truth, encourage them. Again, James is emphasizing we need each other. And we need each other to be the strongest believers that we can be, right? The stronger we are, the easier the load is. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying Him and making disciples who make disciples.